This morning I'd like to talk to you about impressions. If you've been watching the news, we've seen this famine in Africa, in the Horn of Africa, in Somalia. And the other day uh, I heard a report and a humanitarian aid worker looked out on that scene, looked at, gauged the response of the, the global community to that terrible thing. And he held up his hands and he said, where is the humanity here? It's a scene that reflects uh, the frustration we feel sometimes. Why is it so hard for Christians to have a real influence in our world? But maybe that's because in the modern age, we've begun to feel that we should and could be able to explain everything about God, His purposes and why things happen. And if a good and all-powerful God exists, then why are these people in their multitudes in the desert? Why hasn't God ended the acts of barbarism in our world? And yet, for one to think deeply and carefully about this, we have to ask whether our God, the God and Father of Jesus Christ, the God of Israel, actually could do anything about that well. Is anything impossible for God? Well, we have to be careful how we answer that because in the very act of creation, God created the possibility that we could live in harmony with Him or not. A partial analogy perhaps of this would be that of the pregnant mother. In her pregnancy, that child goes with her. Wherever she goes, eats whatever she eats, they are inseparable. But at the moment of birth, the very real possibility is instantly and irrevocably created that that child could live in perfect harmony with her mother or not. And so in God in creating us, raises the really very real possibility that we would live in perfect union with Him or not. And how we answer that, how we make the choice of that, will determine what kind of impression we will leave on the world around us. And sometimes the fruit of that choice will come back to haunt me. I fail to look after my body. I get sick. Sometimes the fruit of that choice affects other people, uh, and their choices affect me. A relationship breaks. We spoil the environment. We squander resources, and every human being has to share in that collective suffering. What impression will we leave on the world? So I understand Pastor Jason has been speaking from Ephesians, and so I won't elaborate on the background of the letter except to say this that Paul did spend at least some time at Ephesus. We know that he spent at least enough time there to cause a riot. And he had probably never met the individuals to whom he later addressed this letter. But he certainly left an impression on that place. And he continues to have a prayer for these people because 
Christians continue to have this darkness within that needs a light like a candle to shine down the corridors of their heart, revealing not only their finiteness, but also the magnificence of God revealed in Jesus Christ. For we, as Paul says, are in Christ. And this wonderful little phrase defines the terrain, the borders, the values, the history of those to whom this letter is addressed. For Christ is now the source of their influence, the power field within which they live their lives and are transformed. And so all that by way of introduction to say that that like those Ephesians so long ago, we too must understand the culture in which we live and move and seek to influence. So if you would just kind of keep that text in Ephesians open or it should be up on the screen and, and I'd like to kind of go through... Um, this verse by verse. It begins with Paul painting a picture that is both beautiful but in the same way bleak. So verse 1 is life controlled by death. When Paul looks back at his own religious life, he now sees it for what it is. It was a state of spiritual death. It was a state of meaninglessness, not even a life worth living. And despite his religious zeal, he realized the futility of that all. And the reason for that was this was a life that was continually haunted by its own mortality. Paul knows this tyrant of death that hounds unredeemed humanity, both in the present day and then hounds it down into the grave. And no matter how spectacular the achievements, without an invasion of life in Christ Jesus, death controls every single moment of our existence, clouds every thought, distorts our view of God, distorts our view of our neighbor. In every aspect of a person's life, death is lurking there in the shadows. And what kind of impression would that kind of person leave on others? Think of the suicide rate. The enormous problem with drugs and alcohol. People seeking some momentary break from this sense, oh, I'm going to die. Think of the lack of meaning that plagues many, many lives. The terror, war, poverty that haunt our planet. Yes, that's a bleak picture. But it's true. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. It seems bleak. But it does capture accurately the human condition. Vast numbers of people, whole populations living in the shadow of death. No wonder this world is a dangerous place. And this is what you might call life in the box. So in in verse 2, it says, You once lived in this life, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. Paul describes a path on which people can only walk in certain ways. rigid boundaries. 
It's a path that can lead one only in one direction. It's life in the box. Where do you walk? Where is your sphere of influence? What social and spiritual environment is shaping you? And for the Ephesians, that sphere had radically changed. They are now in an other place in their lives. Their sphere had been altered. They are now out of the box. Several years ago, quite a few years ago now, uh, the Winnipeg Covenant Church didn't have a building, and so they worshipped in a TV station in a nondescript building in an industrial part of the city. And after attending a service there one time, I, I began snooping around down the hall, and there in the next studio was the the set for the popular children's show, Fred Penner's Place. Now, who's, who's watched that and will admit to, to watching Fred Penner? <laughs> you know, you grew up in this country, uh, you watch it with a, as a kid or as a parent or a grandparent, and, 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 and you remember the show. And it always began with Fred walking through the woods, and he'd come to a hollow log, and, and then he'd throw his backpack down that log, and then he'd crawl through the log and come out in this wonderful place. I've been there. <laughs> I've seen where Fred came out of the log and gave the love and the music and there was pilots I've been there. And I know it was just a TV studio, but, but it was a deeply moving experience for me. But then I had to turn around and go back down that hallway into this so-called real world. Or did I? You see, Paul is reminding the Ephesians of their former path, where they were going. They used to be in the world. The world in this context means that part of creation that part of human existence, that global system that either, either leaves God totally out of the picture is openly hostile to God. The world is one huge box. Oh, you've got everything you could ever desire in there, but it's still a box. The world is where they used to walk. They used to follow the ruler of the power of the air. Now, air is the realm between heaven and earth where the ancient people believed Satan roamed. <clears throat> but now, they've gone through the log, out of the world, into Christ, into a different place, and they've been granted safe passage through the air of Satan's domain and into the kingdom of God. Why would they ever want to go back the Ephesian believers need to be reminded that they are no longer in the box, but nor can they become smug about this because of the inward curve of our humanity. I'm looking at verse 3 now. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of the flesh and senses, and were by nature the children of wrath like everyone else. Now, I don't think Paul's readership in Ephesians were an especially evil bunch. Yet he calls them children of wrath. That seems a bit harsh. But he's simply reminding them that they also lived among the in-the-box people. They lived among them and they were like them. 
And they shouldn't blame the devil, and they shouldn't blame their society. They need to place the blame squarely on their own choice to follow God or not. You see, human nature wants to live in the box. Human nature always swerves us back to what we knew before. Always back to some sort of get back into your box kind of life. To go back to some sort of life controlled by death. The Ephesians were once like that. But they'd gone through the log to another place. But now there's a problem because when we choose to leave God's path, go our own way, it places us squarely on a collision course with God's displeasure, His reaction against sin. And that's a bleak picture. But here comes the good news. God refuses to stay out of the picture. Refuses to leave us in the box. Can't keep His hands off us. Even if we want to stay in that box. But how is He going to get us out if we don't want to go? If we don't want to go back through the log, how do we get out? Mercy, love, and grace. Verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There are three massive, muscle-bound, linebacker giants, and they are running us down the football field. Mercy, love, and grace. Each of these words has a slightly different meaning. Mercy, love, and grace. But when all three of these 300-pound babas pile on you, who can say which one squashes you the most? Is it mercy? Is it love? Or is it grace? They all pile on to express in human language this awesome care and commitment God made to us in the cross of Jesus. Because, you see, we are tricky little folks to try and tackle. That's because often the line between what we have brought on ourselves and what is brought on us by others isn't that easy to draw, so we can easily shift the blame to others. So we weave our way up the field, dodging the blame, doing good, good things. We try and dodge those three big bubbles. We try the hardest to make a touchdown and prove that we can make it on our own when we really need God. But in all honesty, who can claim to be innocent to contributing to the world's suffering? We live in a broken world and we contribute to its brokenness. But the amazing thing is that God enters our suffering. In Jesus, God took on flesh, knew the joys and pains of life and death. He takes to the field of our lives, promising to bring good out of evil and joy out of suffering. It doesn't matter if it's caused by us or caused by others. The big bubbas are on the field, thundering down the turf, keeping up the pace, leaping into the air. Mercy, love, grace. And when we get up and shake our heads, we're in a different place. We are raised with Christ. Verse 6. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This raising up is a past tense thing. Paul is not speaking about the future resurrection which will surely come at the end of the age when the dead will rise. But he's talking about the resurrection Jesus experienced after three days in the tomb. The dead corpse coming alive. Paul makes the extraordinary claim that you and I were raised with Jesus in that garden tomb. We were somehow included in the redemption that took place in the cross and then included in the resurrection to new life. And and how that happened isn't explained, but if death was the problem, the solution could only be the resurrection to life. So through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit imparts to us, here and now, the very same life-giving energy that caused the dead man to rise from the grave. And not only have Christians been raised with Christ, Paul says we are seated with him in the heavenly realm. So imagine yourself sitting there with Christ on a throne in a place of honor and privilege and responsibility. But why are we there? We are there to provide a demonstration of power. And I'd like to, you to follow me with this in the book of Ephesians and kind of put this theme into the context. So in the, the first chapter, in uh, verse 21, it says that we are, uh, that Christ is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Then back in uh, the last chapter, chapter 6, verse 12, in the, where it says, chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against the enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers in this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then in verse chapter 3, verse 10, So that... Through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So if you would trace those or kind of put those, those, that theme together, you will have a picture of the church seated above the cosmic powers in a battle that goes on for the controls of heart and mind, uh, the heart and mind of people. The heavenly realms are not separated from this world up there somewhere in outer space. No, God is, is having his realm interact with this world and actions taken in the heavenly places determine actions on the ground. And being seated with Christ gives us this unique place of influence in our world. What that means is Rather than serving this tyrant of sin, we're totally free to serve God. This is a place of empowerment. Christ's body, the church, is free to engage those dark powers and stand against them in prayer. At times, God would intervene directly in in counteracting evil. He just acts. But why does God do not 
do this all the time. And that's a mystery that belongs to the purpose and, and plans of God. We prayed, and healing comes to one, but not the other. Famine comes to some, abundant harvest to others. But is life on this earth all about making it last, making it pleasurable? Is that the ultimate goal? Or might there be some precious virtues in us, like perseverance and courage and faith that can only be demonstrated by Christians who find themselves at the point of the spear or the scalpel? Some of the perplexity we have with evil and, and, and that we see and we experience is this distortion of our values. For we must live in the present with its brokenness and God's purpose is one with great foresight. He acts not just for our situation but for those looking in on us, those looking back on us in the ages to come are going to have an even clearer picture of who God really is. This is a fascinating thing to me that they will give glory and praise. And theoretically, the gospel is getting better all the time, giving increasingly and growing revelation of more and more of who God is. Each generation bearing witness to God's grace. Because after all, we are saved by grace. As Paul says, in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is the world changing word. No one other word encapsulates the whole message of God to humanity. Grace is the aquifer out of which every spring and creek and mighty river flows. Grace is the completely undeserved loving commitment of God to us for some unknown reason deep within the mind of God he reaches out to us and sets us free no human solution could be found so God connected himself to us through the cross of Christ we are saved says Paul apart from our works and there's an interesting dynamic that now takes place between grace and works how do works and grace operate in this dynamic you know grace was my mother's name her name was Elizabeth Grace Stapleton her first name was Elizabeth, and she was the queen. Her word was law. But her middle name was Grace. And as I entered my teens, I gave my mother quite a bit of grief by drifting towards destructive behavior. And she knew when I went out that door, I'd be down in the woods getting into mischief. And, and the more evidence of that drift in my life, the higher her anxiety level became. And so our conversations would often go like this. Yes, but be home by 10. But mom, the movie isn't over till 9.30. And even if I run out of the theater and the bus is right there on time and I get to the corner and run away all the way home, I can't really promise to be home exactly at 10. Then don't go. And it didn't seem at the time my mother was showing her But looking back, I can understand her anxiety, and, and it's just about timing my life. Her grace was towards me, was 
consisted of laying down the law to me. So I needed to learn how to act to alleviate my mother's anxiety. I had to be home on time, phoning if I was going to be late, not drinking too much, etc., etc., etc. And the more I did those kind of things, it was strange my mother became also much gracious to me. And it wasn't my actions that were making my mother gracious. My, my actions were simply letting her middle name show through more often, allowing me a means to get to that grace. So what Paul would say to us who want to do the right thing, want to fight the right fight, want, want to, to live in God's presence, that we are always trying to discover in our lives the unboastable works, as he's describing them in verse 9. Not as a result of works, so that you, may be bo- that you may boast. We are to discover the tasks that God has already prepared for us to do, and, and this becomes our way of life. We, we discover the same amazing grace to actually do those things. Paul is addressing a universal notion here. No human by their own works, can claim to have found acceptance with God. No way, nobody, not ever. So here's the big question. If we are people who are no longer controlled by death, if we are people who are indeed raised with Christ, seated in the heavenly realms, people with kingdom authority over dark powers, should we not live a very different, leave a very different impression on our world than people who are still in the box, whose lives are controlled with death and the spirit of the world? Big question, and the answer is, yes, of course. But what Paul describes in conclusion in verse 10 are the works of the new creation. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Life outside the box is not about earning God's love, but by fulfilling his purpose. It's about discovering what God created me for and letting that become my way of life. Think about our world. Here I have a world made of wet clay. It looks like a basketball, but it's a world. And it's wet clay. You can leave an impression on it. And uh, I don't quite know where to put this. Maybe I'll just put it there for now. Because this is, this is um, what my point is. Each day, each of us is leaving an impression on the earth beneath our feet. Footprints. Tracks. But we are also leaving an impression on the hearts and minds of the people we meet. We heal them. We wound them. We bless them. We curse them. And as we sing a chorus, or perhaps after the service, as, as you mingle, or, or maybe you want to do this privately at your home, kneeling in a little mud patch in your garden. That's where I do a lot of my thinking and praying. I, I would invite you to come to this world, this wet clay, and leave some sort of impression um, Press your finger into it. Stick a, inscribe a word. I've got some toothpicks here. Just a, a, some sort of symbol, some sort of impression, a word, something. As 
expressing to God what kind of impression that you would like to, to, to leave. What will be left of us when we've left? When we've gone into darkness and these bodies have, have turned into a lump of clay, or just dust and memories. You know, we cleaned out my father-in-law's farmhouse up in the attic and there was a, a mouse that came out of his hole and he died like several years ago. It's a perfect little skeleton of the mouse just dust. When we've gone down and this dust and ashes have shaken themselves back into clay, what will this little blip of time, this little flash of a few years when this clay became a living human being and then went back to the dust. What impression will be left when we've left? What traces will we leave? Will the evidence be compelling that we were people raised with Christ, seated in heavenly places? That we are people created in Christ for good works that God prepared for us? So I invite you to come and leave an impression.